Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Brandon Crockett. Woo! Brandon is a 32-year-old sober father, husband, brother, and son. He began his business career in 2010 in the world of entertainment when he produced the indie comedy feature film Cornerstone in his hometown of Detroit, Michigan, on the heels of his success with producing several short and feature-length films in Michigan Brandon fulfilled his dream of moving to Los Angeles and opening up a music studio in 2013. After five years running the studio, Brandon sold the business in order to have more time at home with his wife and newborn son. Today, he primarily works in real estate investments, but did recently release a music project titled 2004, A Trap Odyssey under the name Nigel Donovan. Brandon cites his sobriety as being the top priority in his life, stating that when he puts his sobriety first, that all other things seem to work themselves out. Ain't that the truth? I was so excited to talk to Brandon and listen to what his journey has been and really get the perspective of what it's also like to be a person of color who is sober and, you know, Brandon definitely went between different crowds and was able to assimilate. And so I think that was a a part of coming into his own. And he has just made an incredible sober life for himself in Los Angeles. And I hope you enjoy your time with Brandon as much as I did. All right, episode 68. Let's do this. Brandon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So how long have you been sober? 12 years now. My sobriety date's April 28th, 2008. Awesome. 12 years. Did you ever think you were going to be sober that long? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> definitely not. Did anyone uh, else think you were going to be sober that long? Definitely not. No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, it's still shocking to say because once you get past the, in my experience, once I got past the first few years, like things have kind of like flown by and like all of a sudden it's 12 years. But in the beginning, I never imagined that people still can't believe it or would never believe like six months. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, right. Totally. Totally. Was your intention to get sober for a long time when you came in? Um, I got sober when I was 20 and oh, I, the underage never had a yeah, legal drink club. I, I'm one of those. I've never had a drink in Me a bar too. my entire life. Well, I've had a drink in a bar, but you are in the club <laughs> of never had a legal drink. Correct. That's absolutely yep. right. Yep, never me too. In life have I. Yeah, but no, it was it wasn't necessarily something that I thought like this is for life or this is I'm gonna make it. I know it necessarily, but I did know well enough that like everything that I was doing just wasn't working. And it was a point where I just knew like, no, it's not gonna work. I can't I can't go back to it. How long this is gonna last. I have no idea, but you know, I knew at that time I didn't have any reservations necessarily about like, oh, I feel like I need one more, or maybe in a couple months I can smoke. It wasn't really I had gone in and out enough times to like kind of get past that point at least. Got it, got it. Okay. So you you grew up in Detroit. 
Yeah. I grew up in a small suburb outside of Detroit. Yeah. And uh, are you in LA now? Yeah. I live in Los Angeles now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh small suburb of Detroit and you were adopted. I was, I was adopted at birth to really lovely parents. And so, I mean, you know, everybody may, there's a lot of people have been adopted or have foster experiences or whatever that may be. I have an older sister who was also adopted at birth. Um, we have different biological parents, but to me, like, unless you would have told me, uh, until I was like told that I was adopted or like it, I never would have known. You wouldn't have known looking at our family that either my sister or myself were adopted. And I never, I mean, maybe subconsciously, but I never really felt like too weird about it or out of place per se about like being adopted. My parents were great. Uh, I think they just couldn't have kids and they were well into their careers when we were, we were adopted. So um, I had a little older parents, but yeah, no, it was. So how old were you when they told you this? I don't remember. It's interesting. People do ask me that question and I don't actually remember. I just always remember knowing. Okay. Okay. I've heard that before actually. Yeah. I, I always wonder like what it would be like to be told that information. And particularly I feel like people tell their kids around like anywhere from eight to 10 and a lot of the time. And like, I'm trying to picture myself getting that information. I mean, we, uh, it, to be fair, we did tell my sister she was adopted when she was eight to 10 and she's not adopted. So <laughs> we just tried to, we just tried to mess with her. We took all her photos out of the albums and that's incredible. <laughs> um, it was, it was, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's important older sibling uh, work that I had to do, you know? Definitely. Definitely. I'm the younger sibling. So I was definitely the one I was always on. The, I was also like, I grew up around a lot of my cousins and my sister and I was a, really the only boy around. Okay. So like okay. I raised around a lot of women and I was the youngest. So I was definitely like the butt of all the jokes. Mm-hmm. That on. But mm-hmm. that's great. But, but now, now it works to your benefit. You know, you absolutely. <laughs> Now you understand us. Absolutely. I do. I do. I, I, I connect with women really well, better than men, I would say. Um, just even like on a friend level, on an understanding level, I feel like. Yeah. And my Tony, my aunt was like, I knew you would like always be confident with women because you're just raised around all women. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not a scary, it's not <laughs> a scary thing. Yeah. That's amazing. So awesome. You had two living parents and it, but you were, so you didn't feel different in your family system, but you did feel different in your neighborhood. Is that? Definitely. Yeah, okay. Tell me about a, that. That would be a fair thing to say. Well, I, again, I grew up in this area, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. I'm sure you, but just by the name, you can tell it's like I, the area is definitely more upper middle class. The majority, I wouldn't say like I was the only black kid, but the majority of people I grew up with were white and Jewish and like fairly well-off families. And it seemed like everybody else, parents were also like the same age, like 15 years younger than my parents. Um, my parents were, uh, I guess uh, I was adopted when they were like 40. So my parents were a little older and I was like, you know, one of the only black kids at my school. I wasn't Jewish. I wasn't having a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, my mom was a really. She was a very successful elementary school principal, which, like, especially from where she came from, she went to the University of Michigan. Like, she came from really nothing, and you know that was really great for our family. And she was the only one. 
out of her siblings and her family that really moved into like, you know, an upper middle class area. And, but we still, I, I, you know, as a kid, I think it's easy to compare and instead of like seeing the similarities. So I always felt just a little like, Oh, well, like we don't do this like other people do, or all my other friends have this or like everybody gets like had new cars. They're <laughs> 16, I guess. You know what I mean? Like little things that I think, subconsciously made me just feel a little different. Did you feel more different because the the being black or being or not being Jewish? <laughs> no, I think I think um not being Jewish, that's funny. I don't know, I guess a combination of both. But I think the weird thing for me too was like I like when I would I spent a lot of time again, I spent a lot of time with family, cousins, aunts everybody went to our grandma's house when we were kids, like all the parents just dropped off all the cousins at our grandma's house. So we'd always hang out. And I remember being, I, I couldn't have been older than 10, probably like seven or something. And being with like my cousins and one of her friends was over. And like, I sound pretty nasally now, but as a kid, I probably was like, hi, I'm Brandon, like super like, you know? And I remember her friend like being like, kind of hood and being like, why, like, why does your cousin talk like that? And like, I didn't understand what she was saying at the time, but like, that's been my experience is like, I always felt like I never fully fit in, in like the neighborhood that like I would be around with my family and my cousins. And I never really f- fully fit in with like my s- friends that I grew up with. Right. Know? Yeah. That, that makes sense. And, and your family and your cousins were, they were not in Bloomsville Hills. Yeah, no, they weren't. So like the, yeah, all my grandma and all my cousins were like in the city of Detroit, like in, um, on the East side of Detroit, which uh, looking back, like, as I've gotten older, it's been like a huge blessing for me as like, I got sober and became comfortable just who I am as a person and a man who I was like made up to be. I, my experiences, like where some people may be uncomfortable in certain areas or around certain people, like I just like going to inner cities, like the Detroit, which is, you know, can be a very tough city. It was always a normal thing to me as a kid. It was never like foreign to me as a child. So like, as I grew up, even though I didn't grow up like actually in the city, um, you know, very much around it, going to church, going to cousins, as I'm older, I still have a certain type of like comfort level and understanding in those areas where I feel like, and vice versa, you know, like I live like on the border of like the Beverly Hills area now. And, uh, you know, I think some people can feel uncomfortable in like stuffy situations and whatever. I, it's, I don't know. Yeah. We, when I was dating, but I've been, I've been uh, with my husband for 10 years. So this was a long time. Oh, thank you. I know. Right. It's, uh, but so this was a long time ago, but we would call, we would call a man like you portable. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, he's, he's very portable. We, you I know, you can so. take him in any situation and he'll be okay. Like, oh no, you don't want that one. He's not portable. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I, I have some advantages and I have tons of disadvantages, but <laughs> I think I am a portable human. You're portable. There you go. I'm just, yeah. I'm pretty comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So, I mean, it sounds like, I think what's great about, I mean, there's lots of things that are great about your situation, but as it relates to being an alcoholic and being, or, you know, being in recovery is that so many of us, it's like something tragic happened to us and it probably didn't make us an alcoholic, but it's an easy thing to point to. Right. And so 
in your situation with having this amazing childhood, having these great parents, you know, having this eclectic background and upbringing and exposure, it, you know, that is a really valuable experience for people to hear about. Cause I get, I hear a lot of people are like, well, I don't have any reason to be an alcoholic. I don't have any, nothing happened. I, my parents were good to me. You know, I was lucky or whatever it is. And they're like, what, what's wrong with me? It's almost like, it's almost like they feel more screwed up than the people who actually had the trauma because you can point to, you know, I can say, oh, well, this happened and that made me blah, blah, blah. But the people who had the good childhoods, they're like, well, what is wrong with me? I had a good childhood and I'm still, still, you know, I'm still drinking. I'm still smoking. What's wrong with me? And so I really love to get, you know, I really think it's important for people who don't have that thing they point to, to tell their story because I can't tell you how many people tell me, Ashley, I don't know what's wrong with me. Nothing happened. And I'm like, nothing needs to happen. Like this could, <laughs> this is not a, like a happen situation. You know, this is a, this is a, a, a compulsive, you know, a, this is a compulsive urge to, to change the way you feel. It doesn't, nothing needs to happen. So how did you get to the place where you started to struggle or what was your experimentation or your, your entrance exposure to alcohol and drugs? Well, my exposure entry into everything. I mean, I think it's interesting, like what you were saying, because I know a lot of people too, that have that same, like, I didn't have all these weird things happen when I was a kid. And like, at the time, like, I think it's just a part of being a kid or a teenager where it does seem like my life's the worst and it sucks and these things happen. As I did mention, I was like really close to my grandma, my mom's mom. And when and she died when I was in middle school, which was when I like started smoking weed and like drinking with my friends. And that was like, by middle school, you're like pretty aware. You know what I mean? For me, like by, by 11, 12, I was pretty like, I understood what was going on and I was like very, very sad about that. That piece of it, right? Just to stop on that, that is not a tragedy, unless it was a tragedy, but typically, you know, that's a nat- that's that's a coping mechanism for a natural thing that happens in your life, right? Is that someone passes, someone elderly passes away in your life that you loved very much, but it's not a it, it's not what we would consider a tragedy, but you it really points to the goes back to using as a coping mechanism to not deal with feelings. Right. So, you know, so it's, I think, I think even more so like that experience shows that you were trying to deal with feelings that you didn't know how to deal with, but it it wasn't a tragedy, but that's, that's still, it's still a coping mechanism. Definitely. And I think in general, my family, we don't deal with feelings in the most normal way. We're just, uh, we're just weird like that. Like everyone till this day, I mean, I love my family to death, but we're just weird. You know, I was kind of raised that way. And um, I think what is what is weird with feelings look like? Because I've I've seen some weird feelings. I'll give like the example that stands out the most and I give the most was the day that I was moving to Los Angeles. I moved here May 9th of 2013. I was in the car, my mom, my dad and my sister driving me to the airport and my dad, who's passed away now, God rest his soul, was looks to my mom and says, did you tell Brandon? And 
I'm like, tell me what? They're like, like, no, we didn't tell him yet. I'm like, tell me what? What do you need to tell me? And my mom and my, I don't know if my mom, who said it, but they're like, my sister, April, who's sitting next to me has cancer. And I'm like, what do you mean? She has cancer, dude. Like, what the, what are you talking about? And like, that's just how my, like, uh, and then like, that was the whole 45 minute car ride to the airport. It was like, just like, oh yeah, I have thyroid cancer and it's going to be okay. But this is, this is, and I'm like, what? How long have you guys known this? Why would you not like it? It's just my family's just so weird like that. My sister's great now. She's fat, you know, she's very much past that situation, but it's just a very much an example of it's yeah. more so yeah, my yeah, mom yeah. too, just how she is. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like they've clearly compartmentalized the situation and therefore it's going to be it's going to be presented to you as compartmentalized. Yeah, definitely. Right. And I right. do that now too, which like I it's it's ingrained in me. It's right. weird. I try to get better at it, but I'm not, I'm really bad at like telling people things. Right. People Interesting. Like, oh, this just happened to you. I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Right. 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 It's <laughs> I'm just currently but it's a good it's episode. a good thing you're portable though. It's so it, it's definitely you know it's you know, <laughs> just say look I'm portable, you know. Relax. But okay, I think so I got off you. What you're asking me? Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. It was it was great. I, all topics are on topic. Okay, so your grandmother passes away. You start smoking weed. Yeah, I was smoking weed. I I mean, the first time I smoked weed was with my friend Colin. We this is going to sound like a very rich kid. We stole my friend Andrew's. I'm not going to say his last name. My friend Andrew's boat. Like he told us not to go on it. We like go on his pontoon boat behind his mom's house. We roll the joint and like smoke it, just me and Colin. And because we knew Andrew wouldn't be cool with us smoking. And I just, you know, there's a lot of people that have that experience and that share in the rooms of like, oh, I found it. And like, this is what, like, this is relieving my 13 year old stresses, you know? (laughs) I wouldn't say I had that moment, but I definitely. I've always, I was always a, I was not a great kid. I was always in trouble. I was always doing shit I wasn't supposed to. And I definitely had this like rebel moment of like, I'm doing what I want. We're smoking and then like I'm high. And I just remember I eat a lot of candy and we went back into Andrew's house and I'm like eating the, this bag of Twizzlers and I'm just like, life, this is tight. This is cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel good. I mean, like, honestly, like, it sounds cool right now. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really fun. He like yelled at us for a minute, like, dude, my mom's going to kill us. But it was like not a big deal. And yeah. But I, again, at that moment, I don't necessarily think I was like, I found the solution. You know? Right, right, right. I definitely right. was like, this is cool. I like yeah. this. This is fun. Let's do it again next yeah. weekend. You know, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that makes complete sense to me. I was going to ask you. I was like, so you definitely got good weed if you were in with the the Jews in the in the uh, in the suburbs because know that they were getting. So that's great. Nothing worse than that. It was so funny. I just sidebar is that you'll appreciate this. So a bunch of people at my company were talking about swag, like like you know, giving people swag, you know, company swag or whatever, but they were calling it swag, And like, <laughs> and so everybody was calling it swag, And I, I like, it was, I was in this big meeting and nobody in the meeting was, you know, had a history with drugs. And I, I was like, I got to stop everybody. You can't, you can't say swag. They're like, why? I'm like, it's not swag. It's swag because swag is terrible marijuana. They're like, <laughs> 
Oh my like god! If so, someone gives you shock, and everybody just looks at me and like, oh god, where I go again? <laughs> that's <laughs> educating the public. I haven't heard that word in a really long time, but that's so funny that like in a corporate setting that that was happening. Also, right? And they're yeah. like, do we? Should we give them some swag? I was like, oh my god, I can't, I can't it do it. It definitely wasn't swag. It was like really good purples. I remember, but I think we literally paid like fifty dollars for a half of course. A gram. So of course. Yeah. That was, like, that was from <laughs> Colin's brother. Uh, they ripped us off. Of course, they, they definitely they not? gave us a joint for like fifty bucks. Right. But you know, I would have done the same thing. Right, little brother. So, <laughs> so then, <laughs> so then, what? How? So, did you smoke in both communities? Did you smoke with your family and your cousins? And did it like? Was it some? Was it basically? Was it a a, a thing you did over time? Just in one one part of your life like was it compartmentalized or was it you know you smoked weed with whomever no yeah it was very much just like my friends and like my home area setting it yeah i would probably be too like my cousins aren't into any of that stuff i have a few like male cousins who are i can get into that later but um no it wasn't until later in my life like later in my teens that i started like was more like connected to like a street situations with them. But um, it just started out as like drinking before school dances and smoking weed before school dances in middle school on the weekends. And looking back, there was a moment that at the time I didn't think was strange, but like by the end of eighth grade, beginning of ninth grade, you know, I was just like, I love smoking weed. Like we do this every weekend, but like there was just this moment that clicked with me. It's like, why don't I do it every day though? It's like so great. And I, you know, at the time I just thought that was just like, Oh, I'm a genius. Like, seriously, I was like, I could smoke weed every day instead of just the weekends, not knowing that that was like addict behavior. I just thought it was literally like, I'm smarter than everyone else. Like you guys only smoke on the weekends. You should just, why don't we just smoke every day? So by ninth grade, it was like very much that's yeah. I, that's what I did. And I didn't know that it wasn't abnormal. I thought everybody just smoked weed, like snuck smoking weed at their house after school by themselves. I just thought that was normal. And did your, did your sister know? Did your parents know? And at what, at like, not at that time. I don't think I really ever got caught smoking weed until like maybe 11th grade, maybe probably. No, my sister, everybody in my family is pretty like square and normal. I was just always the, I don't know, just kind of like a little nutcase running around, you know, always in trouble. Always. I was actually so bad in elementary school. So my mom was a principal at one elementary school in the district. And, but we lived on like the West side of Bloomfield. So I went to a different elementary school, kindergarten through fourth grade, but I got in so much trouble. It was like suspended so many times that they were like, he cannot come back here in fifth grade. So fifth grade, I had to go to my mom's school, which everybody thought was going to be, you know, my mom just loves the shit out of me. So I was like, you know, I got a little special treatment even when I got in trouble and I was, you know, her son. So I think the teachers were nicer to me, but um, yeah, I couldn't even go to the same elementary school because I had just gotten in so much trouble. Um, what kind of trouble? Uh, I bullied kids. I was mean. I was just rude. I was just like, a, I don't know. I, I didn't do schoolwork. I, didn't listen. You know what I mean? Like probably in gym class. I was, I just was a bad, I, I don't know. I just always, when I was really young, was just on my own. Like I can do whatever I want 
kind of. You just weren't interested in school. Sounds like just not, was not at all. In, no. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Not interested in school at all. Definitely. How did things progress from weed or when did weed become the problem? Uh, I don't even know. Weed never seemed like a problem, but like, you know, I played, I played all, I played football, basketball, and I ran track um, in high school. And before football practice, before games, I'd smoke tons of weed. Like it, it never, ever, ever seemed weird or bad, or I couldn't handle it. I obviously, since elementary school, knew I didn't like school. I didn't do well in school. So by high school, I still didn't care much for it, or I didn't have any direction in my life at that point. But it was like, I just, I don't do good in these learning situations, you know? Side note, I was diagnosed, which I think most kids were with ADD in the 90s, uh, and given... I don't know if I was given Adderall, but definitely Concerta, which is the same thing as like a young kid, which I think also looking back was not a good thing. But yeah, I, I think we, what we did do though was smoking weed every single day, like constantly. I think it did lower like my inhibitions or my ability to like make sound decisions. And, uh, by 10th grade, I was, I started getting into like psychedelics and taking a lot of LSD and smoking DMT and like, listening to Pink Floyd. And... I haven't heard about DMT in a while. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, crazy. Uh, I mean, I don't know a lot of stoners who are like known for their sound decision making. <laughs> right. Yeah. <definitely>. <laughs> like <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, I, that's just not a th- you know, so I yeah. think you were in good company. Yeah, no, that was that. I feel like, but that was where the progression was, was like, this is a crowd. I hang out where we smoke weed every day. And then like on the weekends we could try a little acid. Okay. That's fine. Nothing crazy here. The interesting thing is I've never tried ecstasy and I've never done cocaine before and or math or anything. At that time, I was still very like, ah, that those are like ecstasy. They're like weird drugs. You know, like I went to Dimph is like the Detroit Electronic Music Festival. I went there one year. I wasn't even into EDM music really, but like to take acid. And I just remember people taking E and being like, that's not like a type of drug I do. You know, it was very just like a different crowd takes E or does Coke. But there was just, I feel like that progression of like, once I've tried LSD or these other things, it's like, I'm not as afraid, you know? Oh, that wasn't as bad. You know, we grew up on these like commercials or things of like drugs are going to, you smoke a joint and you're going to like, you're going to spontaneously combust. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So like when that doesn't happen and you're like, what do you mean? I smoke weed all day and I just played an amazing football game. Like, I think I'm okay actually. You know, so maybe they're lying to me about the other things too, you know? Um, And I think being a teenager and confused and just trying to navigate like teenage life, like all of those things play a role in like what I was like willing to try or interested in trying or, you know, ended up trying, I should say. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes complete sense to me. I the, the, the D.A.R.E. program, I think you know, it left out, it left out the part that drugs are fun. Like it left, it forgot to like acknowledge that piece. Obviously we wouldn't do them. Like if you just tell us drugs are just bad and it's just bad for you and you're just going to drop dead if you smoke a joint. Well, then someone does it. They find out not only the fun, but they didn't drop dead. Now you've com- lost complete credibility. Now nothing you say, we're not going to believe anything you say. So I think it was just a, a complete shit show on that front. So how did things start to get out of control for you? What was the what was that like? You know, we talk about that invisible line you cross, right? And 
I don't, I don't actually know totally where my invisible line is, but I know like in gen, like kind of the, the, the time period where I cross that invisible line where there's no going back from that. Where was that for you? I think it was when I did try oxycodone or oxycodone at the time. And again, not really knowing what it was. I had taken like Xanax before and Vicodins. And again, I just kind of thought it was the same thing. What it ha- what happened was when I was in high school, I sold a lot of weed and I would sell the weed to this kid who had already graduated. I'd go to his house every day for lunch and he ended up starting to like trade me or like I had tried Oxy one time and I was like, oh, that was fun. That was nice. Same thing. Like I didn't die. Like I just like could, I didn't move from a chair for like three hours. Um, and I felt incredible. There's it, like... That was amazing. But again, after I tried it the first time, it wasn't something that I did every day after that. Probably like three months later, six months later, where this guy that I was selling weed to is like, dude, I'll give you like a little bump for like some weed. I was like, sure. Okay, cool. I like that shit. It feels nice, you know? And I think it was that repetition that I didn't even notice was like every day for lunch, I go by his house, I drop him some weed off. I snort a little line of oxy to get like feel cool for the rest of the day. And then there was a point where like, okay, well, I've just done that for 10 days in a row. For some reason, I feel weird right now. I need oxy. And there's that line in which it's like one day and then the next. 10 days in a row, you know, that'll, yeah. yeah. Without even noticing it, without having any like real knowledge of like how addictive things are or what physical drug opiate dependency is, you know, I don't know these things at 17 years old. I just... I'm like, oh, this feels great. I'm like floating. Not, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. Awesome. Right. I you mean, know? Like, yeah. So it just, you know, you, you dig yourself into that ditch. It's like spending money on a credit card. It's like you're just spending and spending and spending all weekend having fun. And then you're like, how did I just spend $30,000? What the, uh, now I'm screwed. Now I'm like, life, what the f? And yeah. Now I have to do something, you know? Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, this is Ashley Lowe, Blasting Game. I am here to tell you that National Online Recovery Day will debut this year on September 22nd. In celebration, Lion Rock Recovery is sponsoring a live sober influencer panel on getting clean and staying connected. Join me as I moderate an hour-long interactive discussion with three prominent panelists live on the Lion Rock Recovery's Facebook page, September 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Mark it down. Visit www.nationalonlinerecoveryday.com for more event details. Yeah, and, and I think the thing for me with opiates was like, I don't know if, I don't know if you knew this, but I did not. Like I knew that people got addicted. Like I had the, you know, some information. I did not know that with opiates, you get sick and you like, once you're addicted, you get sick and you get well. Yeah. You don't get high. Yeah. Correct. And, and like, I, I remember getting to this place where it was like, Okay, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're not getting high anymore. I'm just getting sick and then I get well. Like then I get normal. I'm like this is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. Like with with I think with the other drugs, you'd still get a little bit hot. Like you'd still there was still something going on there, but but with opiates, it just the longer you do it, the more it's just sick and well. 
And that was uh, that part. I was super pissed that no one told me about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, you don't know. And it just happens. It, It just all just happened. And then that same friend who I was doing that with every day, they're, came a point in time because people would just ask me like, how do you start doing heroin at 17? You know, and there was a point in time where I went to his house again, this is probably two months into doing oxys every day and like knowing, okay, I kind of need it a little bit, just like I need weed. They're the same thing, you know, <laughs> this thought and then going over there one day and he's like, Oh dude, I don't have any oxys today, but I have like a little bit of dope, like a little bit of heroin. It's literally the same thing, but it's cheaper. So I'm like, well, it's the same thing of nothing. It's like a make a decision right now in this moment. Like, do you want it or do you want to feel like shit for the rest of the day? Sure. I've tried everything else. Literally, again, nothing's happened. I, okay, I'm fine. Sure. And then you cross that line again. It's like, oh, somebody says something. I've tried heroin, dude. It's fucking, it's nothing. It's same. It's like a pill. Right. It's well, because when people say heroin, you think that it, like, I remember when the first time seeing heroin and you guys probably had what we, we on the West coast referred to as China white. You guys probably had powder hair. We, we had a tar heroin, black tar heroin. So I, I never had powder heroin. And I remember someone bringing out, uh, the first time seeing it and like, in my head, heroin was like a boogeyman that was going to come into the room. You know, like when someone said her- like, oh, I'm a heroin addict or like heroin, it like, it was almost like the substance itself had some sort of like evil, I don't know, scary, like it was going to hurt me right then and there. And there's, there was something about it just being put out and looking at it, it like, and it was just this like, I don't know, just it looked like a piece of hard candy. And it wasn't like the whole experience did not match, particularly the first couple times, did not match what my head had made it to be. And so I was able to say, I was, the you know, seeing it and then trying it and, I, you know, like I was okay and, and it was just this little whatever and it was not this big. Like that basically made it okay in my head because had I been like, well, it looks okay, but it's actually really dangerous and it's actually like had it not lived in this this bubble in my head, I probably would have been more realistic about it. But because I was like, well, this isn't a people are just crazy. They're just saying, you know, like all the things that I told myself. And then you cross that line. And yeah, I mean, particularly if you're already addicted, I mean, that, that there's and it's it is cheaper. I think I had a, a little different experience, too. It's easier when you grow up in the suburbs and you don't necessarily see like drug addicts every day on the street. I think it was it was interesting with how I grew up in a more suburban area where it's not in your face every day that you actually see the results of drug addiction. You don't think you don't like know or have these everyday stories of like this person was normal and now they're not. And now they live on the street. You have this like idea when you're 15, 16, 17 years old that like, Oh, well like those people on drugs in the streets are like, that's probably just like how How they they are. They They were born that way. Yeah. They were literally born like that. You have no idea. These are, are normal people. And the interesting thing for me is that is exactly what I, turned into was a homeless junkie running teenage junkie running around the streets of Chicago and Detroit with no family that wanted to speak to me or, you know what I mean? And like, how did you get from, take take us, take us from uh, Bloomfield, Bloomfield 
from Bloomfield to the streets of Chicago? <laughs> so I, again, I had no direction in life. Uh, in high school, I had you know no real idea of what I wanted to do. But I did in 11th grade. I had a film teacher who was really cool. It was really great. She got me interested in film and art. And I was, it was like creative. And I liked to, it was like my own shit. She used to let me come there after school and edit videos. And like, it was something I finally in school liked by 11th grade. So I ended up, she, I got into Columbia College in Chicago. She helped me get into that school. She also helped me get into my second rehab, which is interesting. <laughs> um, I was, she helped me. Yeah. One day I was in class and, had a breakdown and she literally sat there with me on her lunch break and called a bunch of rehabs and she's an angel, Donna Learmont. <laughs> um, and um, so I got into Columbia College in Chicago, um, which is Chicago's like, you know, Vegas, LA. It's four hours. It's very close. I even have a cousin that lives there. So it was a creative art school, you know, and I went there like I'd been to rehab, I think already two or three times when I going into Chicago, going into college. I was on like a 30 day clean situation feeling like I got this new city. I'll be all right. And, you know, within the first 10 days of being there, um, you know, I found some, some shit on the streets and it was, I was off and running and it was an entire year, uh, school year of, I mean, I got kicked out of the dorms by the second semester and kicked out of school by second semester. So, uh, um, I got kicked out of the dorms for like stealing shit, I think. And I just, well, I didn't get kicked out of school. I just didn't go to any of my classes second semester. I maintained it first, first semester. I went to classes, showed up, was shooting dope, showing up to school, nodding out, like whatever. Second semester, there was no time. It was, was full time job. There's no way I'm robbing, stealing. I got to, you know, so I just didn't go to classes and then the dorms, I'm having a really hard time remembering right now, but there was an incident. I, I had, I stole something. I don't know. I got kicked out of the dorms. When did you move from snorting to shooting? In college, in Chicago. I actually, it's interesting in life how we find our people. Yeah, and yeah. I was in class in Chicago and there's this kid and I'm still friends with him on Facebook today. And I look over and I'm like, this fucking guy's nodding out right now, man. Like, what does he know that I don't know? You know what I mean? So Again, I'm like the shyest person in the world at that point in my life. But I go up to him after class and I'm like, what's up, dude? Like, and he was opposite of me. He's like out of a movie, like this, like vibrant, skinny, junky kid. Like, what's up, dude? Like, and then they were like, you know, um, it's like train spotting, like literally, um, Ewan McGregor and train spotting. And, uh, uh, it was, you know, I told him, you know, I snorted, he started taking me to some of his spots and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, dude, you know, it like works so much easier. And I'm deathly afraid of needles. When I was a kid, I was deathly afraid. Even it's interesting now, I'm still afraid of needles again. It's I've reverted back to, I turn into a five-year-old at the doctor and I'm like, Ugh. but for a couple of years, I was not afraid, not, not afraid at all. So he, you know, he is like, dude, oh, you, you know, it's, it's way quicker. It, feels better, all the shit. Okay. I watched him do it again. One of those barriers. And I was one of those dudes too. Walked around. Oh my God. I would never shoot up. That's gross. Are you disgusting? Like what's wrong with you people? You're a real junkie if you shoot. Again, that, that barrier was broken. And once it was, it was like, why the f 
did anybody tell me about this earlier? Like, shoot, can't even snort anymore, you know, and just got worse and worse. And, and that's, you know, and, and Chicago is a little different, you know, um, there was like housing projects where I used to go to uh, get dope and I would, there'd be times where I had a bus pass from school. Um, so I'd take the bus pass, uh, but I think I lost it or something at some point. And um, I would walk, like I lived at seventh in state and I used to go down to like 28th, 29th in state. Um, so I'd walk like 20, 30 blocks down at there and back and like, in the snow, no matter what, because sometimes all I would have is 10 bucks. Like that's it. All I have is 10 bucks. I don't even have bus fare. Like I got to get there. And it, like you said, it was at a, that point, it was just to get well, you know what I mean? There wasn't even like high, wasn't even a thing anymore. It's like, well, I'm sick and I can't get out of bed. So I need to, you know. So when you lost your housing, what did that look like? I didn't really have like many belongings. Um, and luckily it was only for like, two or three weeks, maybe a month. Um, I had one friend from home that lived there in like a nice ass apartment. And if, you know, just like any good junkie, like that lasted for about a week until he was like, dude, you gotta get the fuck away from me and out of my place. Sorry. Not my language. Um, he kicked me out. I was living on the streets, so sleeping outside. I stayed at the mid down the, the Jesus saves mission a couple of nights, like just bouncing around Chicago. And then when my parents came to pick me up, they had no idea, and so I just they didn't. Played it up. They didn't know you were kicked out of school or the. Dorm. Well, I don't think they knew until like the semester was actually over. How I like wasn't going to my classes, and I basically just had fails on every class. And I don't. They never knew I was kicked out of the dorms. Okay, I mean, I so like no, they have no, and so they have no idea that you are home, homeless in no, Chicago. No, oh no, no. My mom would have had a heart attack. Right, right. Okay. Definitely. She didn't know. She didn't know. Again, I was homeless in Chicago for maybe a month, three, three, four weeks, bouncing around people's couches. I left like some of my stuff in my old dorm room because it was like towards the end of the semester. Right. So they weren't putting um, anyone in there? No. And I think all I really had like that my parents picked me up with was like a TV and clothes. Yeah. Like, DVD. You know, DVDs, right? And honestly, I don't even know if I had DVD. I probably sold them. I sold everything. I sold my school, but I sold everything. Like, is there's no way I had things. So, so your parents yeah, come and get you. That's actually a gnarly story. Yeah, they picked me up. Uh, I used to do these things where I'd like, I don't know. I was like, I, I went to the. I told them I had to go to the bathroom at this Panera Bread that was in the building, and then I go in there with this same kid that I was getting high with. Like one last hurrah, we're in a stall together, and my dad comes in the bathroom, and I can hear like I just saw his feet or something. I don't know. I knew he was in there, you know. And you're are you in a stall with this kid? Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm in a stall with my. He's homie, like, like, this is either news. <laughs> this is either news yeah. or news. Yeah. Um, good thing that time my dad didn't catch me, but that actually happened a whole other time when I was back in Michigan after college and. It was really sad where I made my dad, who my parents aren't very knowledgeable of these things. So I was like, I used to tell him, oh, I have to go to this one liquor store in Pontiac, like in the hood. They have like two for one cigarettes. You know, you got to take me to this one. And I went there and I've run around the store and grabbed dope. And then I got in his car and I'm like, oh, can we go to McDonald's? Like, I'm really hungry, you know, and we go to this McDonald's and I'm in the bathroom. I was also really bad at hitting my veins oh, when God. I was doing drugs. And I was in this hot man. I was in this. Yeah. I was in this bathroom for probably 45 minutes when my dad, who's six foot four comes in there 
at some point, he's like, are you okay? Like, what are you doing in the bathroom for, for 45 minutes? I'm like, yeah, 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 I just need a minute. Just like, give me a minute. And like, he looks over the thing, you know, like, he's tall, he looks over and he just sees me like sitting there, like uh, trying to shoot up. And uh, like, that was, yeah. I mean, uh, I couldn't imagine like, Oh man. Yeah. Even to this day, it's like a very heartbreaking thing to think about. What, um, what was the look on his face? I mean, you know, I think it's one of those things that you're just so confused and yeah. like hurt and destroyed that he was just like, come out, like, come out, just please. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, right. the crazy thing about that was like in that wild moment of like, I don't know if it's the adrenaline or what, but I just finally hit a vein and was like, did it and like came out and like, it was cra- oh, so crazy getting his car. And um, yeah, that was that summer. That was the summer of 2007. Went to a rehab then, so that was probably my third rehab. Because my college, I graduated high school '06. Went to college, you know, fall of '06, spring of '07. That that incident so happened. He knew because this is your. So he actually knew. Come to think of it, I'm think, I'm 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 picturing him have like no idea you've ever used drugs or you're ever using or like ever it being a problem, but. Come to think of it, you've been to this. You've been to two rehabs already, so yeah, it's oh, yeah, not yeah. like no, it's that not far fetched. <laughs> no, no, okay. and and my so my high school girlfriend, both of her parents were twenty something years so like AA sober, and she was like my high school love, dated most of high school on and up. Um, so her dad, who like you know. Um, looked at me and knew what was going on and was got me into my first rehab. Um, got it. Okay. Okay. So your so, parents yeah, knew was, that you had a drug problem. Yeah. They knew I had a drug problem, but again, like having no experience with it. Right. They, just, they thought you were no solved. Idea. You were fixed. Yeah. You know, just like any normal human that has no idea of this stuff. Right. They're right. Like, they're like, oh, oh you, you went to rehab. You go to rehab and then you're fixed. Oh, right. Okay. Cool. Great. Oh, maybe he right, needs right. one more time. Okay. Okay. So you go to your third rehab and you come out of there. Mm-hmm. That was the summer of 07. Stayed sober maybe 30 days. Started getting high with some girl that I had met there. And I was just back at my parents' house. Uh, summer, fall of 07. Not going back to college. Huge disappointment in life. And at doing the same thing back and forth. And then Christmas of 07, I... Like I stole, uh, there are gifts, like everybody's gifts. Oh, jeez. Like, got these gifts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. We got, everybody got gifts and like, they're like literally like portable DVD players. I'm like, oh. old as shit now. Oh. Um, and like all this stuff. Okay, and I, I took feel them, you. And I, I'm, we're about the same age. <laughs> I took them to like the dope house thinking some, for some reason, nobody's going to notice all of their Christmas gifts missing. Oh my God. And literally two hours later, my parents are like, what, what the f*** happened on? everything <laughs> you're like um, santa came back yeah it's like i don't know man somebody is here i guess you know <laughs> telling remembering these stories and talking about it is so crazy right now like so sad i did that and then my dad was and that was the first time like even my sister broke down and was like screaming crying like that moment in, the, in those moments that it's hard unless you've had experience with it where you just sit there even as like with the best intentions, it's like, you're still like a shell of yourself, you know? So I'm like looking at this happen and it's like, I want to feel bad, but honestly I don't. I'm watching my sister like cry 
my mom in tears and like, I, I'm not even like a human, you know? But so. you, you, I mean, so I've had that experience, like I'm picturing exactly the experience where my parents are sitting on the stairs and I'm telling them in that moment, like, look, I don't really care how you feel because this is what I need to do. And I'm just here for the money and the shelter, like literally telling them like, and they're like, we love you saying all this stuff. And I'm just like, cool. And I think what happens is that, and I'm picturing your situation is like, you're so, you have to, you're so shut down and you have to, in order to survive in this, this craziness, you have to become somebody else. You have to, in order to survive. And so it's like, they, I, I, the other thing I felt was like, you do not like they're crying, they're upset. And I'm like, you don't even understand what happens if I don't do this. <laughs> right, like, yeah. like you don't know, like you don't get it. And so my pain, because I know what's going to happen, my pain feels bigger or looks bigger than their pain in that moment. And so I think that was part of why it was like hard for me to, it's like, you're crying because I took your DVD player, but you don't understand if I don't take your DVD player, I'm going to be my skin is going to light on fire. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, my eyes will never stop watering. I'm not going to sleep for a week. Like, what are you crying about? Like, this isn't a big deal. What I'm dealing with is a big deal. Right. I've never heard anybody in all my 12 years being sober verbalize it like that, but that is absolutely right. And that's incredible to hear you just even put it into words like that is, that's what it was. And, and also like the things that you're seeing out there and involved. Like, right, 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 right. You're like, what do you know about? That's that, that was the other thing. Like, what do you know about anything? You you live in this little happy bubble. Like, you're just so, and you're so angry. I, I don't know. I felt like I was so angry at everything that it just, of course, you and I look back and, and I know you're a parent. So like as parents, you know, I look back and as a mom, I'm, think, I'm thinking about looking over that stall or, you know, like my seeing my kid, right? And it's just like, oh, it just hits you. But in the moment, you are a shell of yourself and you're so angry and you've seen so much and you're just, you're so tired. There's like, and you feel like such shit about yourself. There's no room left to feel shitty for someone else. It's like, yeah, I had no emotions about it at the time. Yeah. Yeah. None. And they kicked me out and that was the next road to my next stint of homelessness where my dad was like, you can't live here anymore. We'll find you a rehab you know, at that time again, um, my birthday's the day after Christmas. So I guess <gasps> I just turned no. 20. My birthday's yeah. December 27th. Oh, wow. That's crazy. What, what year? 87. I'm 86. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, you know so, what that's like. Oh, yeah. Christmas baby. Uh-huh. There was no birthday for me that no. year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. There isn't nobody celebrated. Um, so, yeah. He's like, you know, I was 20. So my ins- I was still under their insurance. And he said, we'll get you into a rehab. But however long it is after that, you cannot come back here. Um, so it was 30 days. I got high in that rehab because I'm crazy. And yeah, so that was January of 08. And my sobriety date is April 28th of 08. So I went to this halfway house. So take, take me to you getting sober. What, what was the change? What was the reason that it, it finally... So I lived in this halfway house... Parents wouldn't talk to me. Sister hated me, had no friends, kicked out of college. I mean, I gave you the the rundown of kind of where my life was at. There's this guy who worked at that rehab. The last one I went to, his name was Lee. I'd actually gone to that rehab twice. So that was my second time there. I knew Lee. 
he's this old shiny suit wearing black dude, like super prison four times Cadillacs, like very reformed, loud, tells me I'm an idiot, like, which I needed, like, you're dumb, your ideas are stupid, you're dumb. He had this thing at rehab where I went to this all-male rehab, and he would tell these grown men, all of us, say, do you love your mother? And, like, everybody, of course, of course, I love my, and he'd, like, yell, you don't love your fucking mother. If you loved your mother, you wouldn't let her around a drug addict like yourself. And, like, he just, like, you know, it's very hard. But people needed it, you know, and we all needed it. And so I lived at Lee's house, which was, again, it was like eight guys that just basically paid him rent that were coming out of this rehab. And some of us stayed sober. Some of us didn't at the time. But when I got there again, um, and I was high the, the day I got there and he knew and he like didn't say anything in front of my parents. And then he pulled me aside afterwards. But I mean, he treated me like a son. He called me a son uh, years into my sobriety because um, he never had kids. But he uh, I got high at that house for months, like I said, until April. And there was a moment where, so basically I would have these times in there where I get 14 days, I get seven days, I get whatever, you know, the back and forth. And I think at one point I'd gotten maybe two weeks, you know, and, you know, he was always, you know, cause he knew how my parents were. They're not, they have no idea about the street and they want to be very like soothed. So he's like, you know, he's doing good and reassured him a little bit. And Long story short, I like came up on like 300 bucks, which is like a million dollars at the time. And I took that money and I bought like 250 bucks worth of dough, Picardina, Newports, and some E&J, like brown. <laughs> And yeah, I was a real dirty dude. <laughs> ready, uh, ready to go and, and ready to rock. And I, I had everything. So I had this moment where I had everything. I had enough dope for three days. Nobody's going to bother me in this dirty, disgusting basement that I live in. I sit there, I listen to Alice in Chains and play, watch Celebrity Rehab and just in this dark, so weird. I used to watch Celebrity Rehab in there. I'm in this dark, just like dungeon of a room place. But I have everything, you know, and then I had this moment of like just waking up, get high and got it. And even, you know, shoot, have enough to get me through the day. And I had this moment that even this is not enough. Right. What happens yep. now? If this is going to go away. If even this where I have a carton of cigarettes. I literally am smoking them in the room. Don't nobody's bothering me. And it still is enough. It still has not fixed the problem. And he had kicked me out like right before then. And I, I was homeless again for like a week. But he kind of did it as like a joke or a test, he told me later. But I needed it. You know, I was sleeping again. I'm sleeping in crack houses in Detroit. I'm looking at my life of where I'm at at 20 years old, no family, sleeping in this crack house with a dude with a pistol bigger than my body. Like that, you know, how how did we end up here? You know, right. Yeah. How did we end end up up here? Is like, and I, I I had a moment of clarity then of like that last homelessness. I had a moment of clarity when I was like in my room getting high and by myself. And there was one morning I woke up, I shot up. I don't remember anything except for just waking back up an hour later. And there's still a belt on my arm and the needle. So whatever happened in that hour happened and I was freaked out. Everybody was at work and nobody was there. I could have died. Nothing but, you know, it was it. It, it was just, was it. I knew in that moment like, this is going to suck. This is going to hurt really bad. I cannot just kind of smoke weed sometimes. I cannot just like drink a little bit of alcohol. 
I can't just pop pills. I can't do heroin on the weekends. None of it is like, it's not working. I'm, I, I've tried it. So I was tired, you know, and I, I've related it to like being in a abusive relationship or any relationship in life. When you're done, you're done. Like, you know, you might take that person back a thousand times, but that one time you had enough was like my moment. And I was like, this is going to suck. Like you mentioned earlier, seven straight days, could not sleep, cold sweats. I mean, Lee was also the kind of guy where like he knew I was withdrawing. And like one night, it's four o'clock in the morning. I finally fall. So he kicks, he always teaching lessons. He kicked me out of like my regular room and made me sleep. on like literally like a cot in the hallway. And like, I couldn't sleep tossing and turning all night, cold sweats. I sneak, it's 4 a.m. I'm like, fuck this. I'm going in my old room. There's nobody even in there. Sneak back in there. He come, I finally fall asleep. Comes down an hour later. What are you doing in here? You get your ass back on the cot. Like, you know, like I'm damn near like crying. Like, oh my God, please let me like, you know, but I, I needed that, you know, like I can look back at those moments now and just that it's, where it takes me it's where i go you know i'm i'm extreme when it comes to yeah i mean lifestyle i love that you said i was so tired because it's funny i relate it to that too and i was 19 when i got sober and i just felt like first of all i wasn't dying like you know everybody talks about dying and i was like this isn't i'm not dying i'm just living in this like really horrible space in between and i was so my life was exhausting me exhausting. Every situation I got in, the every everything was so chaotic and complicated and exhausting and I felt exactly like that. Like I'm t- I can't do this anymore. I'm too tired. I'm too tired to live this life. Mm-hmm. I was just beaten. I was just I couldn't it was too hard to deal with. And I knew the the withdrawals were going to happen and my bones. I I I remember I didn't physically like my, my bones didn't physically feel okay for 60 days, 45 days. Oh, maybe. for sure was For sure. bad. Like, obviously I got past like the not being able to sleep thing after like, after, uh, like a week, you know, of, okay, now I can at least like fall asleep a little bit normally somewhat, but the actual like physical, like my body's just not okay. was, was for a while, you know? And I remember being in meetings in early sobriety and just physically being like, just really still very like this, you know, like very hunched over and, and just not able to like do anything physically. Yeah. Just super uncomfortable, super uncomfortable. So you started going to meetings and how long were you sober before you went to LA? Oh, I was five years sober. Okay. So you, I got sober in LA and I moved to Los Angeles in 2013. Okay. Okay. And so you, what made you move to LA? So when I got sober in Michigan, after like a year and a half or so, I got back into film, was writing, producing like shorts in Michigan while working like nine to five jobs. And I did well in Michigan with like doing film stuff, you know, me and my little like crew of guys who a couple of them were also sober, like were writing and producing shorts. I ended up writing and raising money, writing and producing uh, a feature film, an indie feature film in Michigan. And like the next step just seemed like going to California, Los Angeles and like continuing to pursue my goals in uh, doing film in LA, writing and producing. Awesome. And so you, you got on a plane and yeah, well, was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I saved up a little money. I worked a job, saved up money, had a goal. Uh, 
of coming out here. And yeah, I, I didn't really have anything really lined up like that. I had friends that I knew that lived out here and friends of friends and stuff, but I just kind of, yeah, I was, I'm 25. I need to, you know, I want to pursue my goals and dreams and it, it was a blessing to be able to, to do that. What's happened since you moved to LA? <laughs> a lot. I was five, 25 and five years sober when I moved here and like already kind of withering out of the boring meetings in Michigan or what I thought were boring. You know, I, I didn't learn really in my first five years that like drugs and alcohol were just like a symptom of all of this. Like the real issue is me and I like the continual work I have to do on myself. So at like 25, a little bit of money saved up, freshly single, moving to Los Angeles, like five years sober. I very much believed in my mind I graduated from AA and I didn't need meetings anymore as for like old people and like dudes who are really like, you guys are weird, you know? And I didn't, I didn't, I'd never been to a meeting in LA. So it just, <laughs> I don't know, which is fun. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I moved here and basically long story short, as I went two and a half years without going to a meeting because I just was, yeah, I was just like, like going out and like trying to be on the scene and like girls and everything was way more important than like, Hey, I just thought, you know, I'm good. I don't, I never in that time did I like think about drinking, smoking weed. I've been in some questionable situations to think about getting high. But in 2015, like I was just in such a dark place mentally. I had hit a crazy emotional bottom that I needed because I'm hard headed and I need like these things to call back on like in my life, which I hit that emotional rock bottom and my higher power, the creator of this universe, whatever you want to call it, God is incredible and always works in amazing ways. And in December of 2015, darkest, lowest I'm at still, I'm seven years sober, but like, don't go to meetings. My best friend, Devin calls me and he's like, Hey man, I'm in rehab again. And like Utah, it sucks. It's cold. Like, I don't want to be here. Like, can I come live with you? Like, I'm gonna call my mom and see if I, she lets me like go to LA. It's just like, just, you know, his parents will let him do whatever he wants basically. And, um, I was like, all right, man. I mean, sure. If you actually get on a plane and come to LA, you can stay with me and I'll help you get sober, you know? Cause everybody, I'm like still the poster boy. I'm seven years sober. It's crazy, you know? And, uh, he's like, all right, let me call my mom. Calls me back like two days later. Yo, I'm coming on the 29th. Blah, blah. I'm like, all right, dude, sure. Whatever. You can live on my couch. And um, he did. And he uh, he went to an outpatient here in LA. And like some of the guidelines of that were he had to go to the outpatient every morning or three times a week at, I don't know, 7 a.m. And he had to go to meetings every day. And like he didn't have a car, obviously. So I had to take him to outpatient and I had to take him to meetings every day. And like for me, I was like, I mean, shit, I don't really need it, but he's fine. Like he definitely totally totally he needs this shit so i'm gonna support him because i'm a good person i'm a good friend right right right. i got you dude i'll take you to meetings and he didn't stay sober in that time but it catapulted me back into aa catapulted me well you probably were like wait a minute aa meetings are like this like yeah yeah that was like like, dude there's hot chicks at aa meetings i was shocked i was like this isn't even like remotely what i'm used to of aa and then it just also just became this like weird thing of like, he's like, yo, I just got a sponsor and I'm working the steps again. And I'm like, 
this shit's kind of cool. Like it's decent. Maybe I'll get a sponsor and work this stuff. You know what I mean? Like these little easy, or I think actually somebody asked me to sponsor them because I was seven years sober and I was like, uh, sure. And then I was like, dude, I don't even like remember half of this stuff. And like, I needed to get a sponsor to like remember the stuff to sponsor this guy again. And I mean, yeah. What's amazing about that is that based is that the newcomer by being of service, like the thing that got you back plugged in and the thing that we always talk about is being of service and being of service to the newcomer, that is what got, like got you back in and probably saved you from another relapse because you took your friend, you were of service, you took your friend to meetings for him, you were of service to the newcomer, and then you were of service to the person who asked you to sponsor them, which require you to step your game up. Mm-hmm. It was and it, incredible. It, it just it brought you right back in, which is amazing. Yeah. And now I know. And it wasn't until I worked back through the steps and got that clarity again. It was almost like having like a spiritual experience or a white light again of like, that's why it was like a weight lifted off of like my shoulders. Cause I couldn't understand. I got to this super dark place and I didn't relate it to like not going to meetings. I tried to go to Kabbalah. I tried yoga. I tried being a only being a vegetarian. Like I just trying to fix all these things without like going back to what really fixes it for me. But I needed that. If I do AA and I put that in like sobriety and the 12 steps, that type of lifestyle first, sure. Yoga helps. You know what I mean? The other stuff helps. But like, if I don't do that stuff first, I have none of the other stuff. Like it just, it mentally is like, it just, it, it, it changes my life, you know? And I try to work the steps at least once a year, like with a sponsor and cause I need it, you know, like I'm a, I'm not one of those people who necessarily is like, Oh, if I don't go to a meeting for five days, like I'm going to die. But yeah. yeah, I'm definitely one of those people that's like, uh, it's been like six months since I've been like, some shit that I should. And I've been a pretty shitty person for a little bit here. We need to like get back on track or I'm not feeling great or I'm having difficulty handling certain situations where I know I shouldn't, you know? Right, right, right. Where my emotions, the, my emotions in the situation are out of sync. <laughs> yeah, There's a mismatch here. And how did you uh, meet your wife? <laughs> I met my wife on Instagram. Woo! Okay, cool. Yeah, online romance. Online romance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, what? How? When? How long sober were you when that happened? I don't know. Almost ten years, I guess. Yeah, things moved fast when I met my wife. We met in October of 2017. It was our first date, and then by April of 2018, she was pregnant, and we were. Married in July of 2018, and now we have an 18 month old son, and she's pregnant again. Oh, that's so awesome! Congratulations! <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thank you. So, when is the baby due? In September. I have a son now, and yeah, we're expecting a daughter in September. That's awesome. That's awesome. And is how is your relationship different now that you're you're regularly involved in program than relationships that you've had in the past? I think I just am able to look at, look at things more objectively, I guess, when I'm like in the right type of headspace than not, you know, I think not just like romantic relationships, but like personal relationships as well. I may have like sabotaged or ruined in the past in that like time between 2012 and 2015 where like I just was 
I was on no type of like path or track mentally. I was just all over the place. It was like I had reverted back to my like savage younger ways of a human, uh, lie, cheat, steal, just sober. And so I sabotaged a lot of things that way during that time. Whereas now I have just been back to like spirituality, you know what I mean? And like, constant work on myself and it's not easy because as much as I work on myself, the rest of the world has no obligation to work on themselves. And I'm like a very stubborn person and like we're Capricorns. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. absolutely right. You get it. Uh, Well, you want to hear something great about that is that I have three and a half year old twin boys and I'm a Capricorn. My husband is a Gemini and you know, the Gemini is the twin or the twins. And I had twin Capricorn boys. No way. So there's three of us in the house. We are the most stubborn people on the planet. <laughs> yeah, we, we are. And it's, it's, I don't know. Again, I'm literally working on it. I think I need therapy about like just how to be less stubborn. I don't understand it. I have conversations with friends who are like, yeah, well, you know, you should just like drop it. I'm like, but no, though. That's, that's, no way. That's not how I got to take it to the end. <laughs> yeah, but it's also, you know, it's 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 bad in certain situations, and yeah. it's great in certain situations. Totally. I'm just a very passionate person who, like, if I want something, I'm going to get it. You know what I mean? I'm going to strive for it. In I do positive ways. So yeah, it works for us in some areas. And not in other areas. So we have to figure out, you know, how to apply it where it works and and pull it back where it doesn't. What do you have going on professionally? What's what's coming up? Uh, what's in the on the docket for Brandon? It's interesting. Like this whole quarantine thing for me at least has made me it's the second time in my like adult life where I've things have happened outside of my control where I feel like professionally I have to take more control of certain things and make sure to kind of diversify what I do. So again, I moved here doing film, got over the film industry in a couple of years and I moved into music, which is really big in my family. And I opened a music studio and I was running a music studio for a long time. And then I like sold the music studio, got rid of that stuff. Um, when my wife got pregnant and I still do some music stuff, like as far as booking artists and stuff like that for studio sessions. But since like the birth of my son and like being the head of my household and everything, um, I've just transitioned more of like investing my money in things um, and like learning new skills. So the past couple of years, I've been like put money in the stock market. I day trade, which is great. I did recently record an album and release it, which was fun, but I did it during quarantine when I like, so for me, things are normally like pretty crazy with like work, finding new things, like finding new businesses and like running around with stuff. And then the quarantine happened and like, I didn't really shut down, but like everything else did. So like, I would still do my like, you know, same work stuff. I still had a pretty similar work schedule because I worked for myself and work from home. But then it just got me into like, wanting to do more things um, and like learning and reading. And then I realized I still have so much equipment at my house. I can just record a whole album here. And I did and put it out and, you know, um, what's the album called? 
It's called 2004, A Trap Odyssey. Where can people find it? On Spotify, Apple Music. It was released through a distribution company called Empire, which is a great distribution company. I love them. <laughs> they, they, they do a really good job. So it was fun. It was a blessing to just like take time, record, put new music out, like get back to being creative and, and just like push myself to do more of like something that I kind of got away with when just like focusing on like, you know, a family and saving money and like, you know, making sure my income streams are like really good and comfortable to like, okay, well things are a little different right now. And I have a little extra time on my hands, which the AA in me just always is looking for like the blessing and things. And like when quarantine happened, it's hard for me not to feel really bad for a lot of people because it's very, very, very negatively affected a lot of people's lives. And I've had to look at, I took it like, Oh, I'm spending so much less money, like going out to dinner and quit ending my gym. Yeah. We look for the blessing. Yeah. It's just, it's just how I kind of wired. And so I, yeah, I, I did that and I was fortunate enough to record a project and put it out. It's fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I have one last question for you and it's not a small one, but I just want to touch on it given the times of everything. You're kind of, I mean, being in LA, you had a son who you have a son of color and you're a man of color during this time. What has the Black Lives Matter and during quarantine um, and all of that talk in, 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 you know, that has come up recently. How has that felt for you? Have you felt the urge to be involved in that? Has fatherhood changed your feelings on it? Is it just not something you think about? I think that I'm still kind of somewhat processing a lot of it because for me, again, always sticking out in places a little bit and like, I've, I'm immune to a lot of like what's going on because I'm just, it's kind of normal in my life, which is, you could call it a good thing or a bad thing. I just, I think I have a different perspective on it because I'm very used to people locking their car seven times and I'm in a grocery store parking lot. You know what I mean? Or like being judged maybe when I walk into fancy department store or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Like, I'm very used to certain things or just knowing like the inequality that exists and like if I'm pulled over or if my friend is pulled over, you know what I mean? And so it's jarring because there's so much media coverage of like what's going on. And like, you're seeing these like being really desensitized to like these images of violence. But I wouldn't say that I'm like surprised about it happening. I think it's good to it's it's great to see like young people out and like really voicing their opinions and i think the most important part in my mind is for people who are like protesting is like doing something past the protesting you know what i mean right. like actual right. change like putting Don't effort into actual them. chains yeah 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 absolutely. did you were you a lot of friends of mine who are particularly black male friends of mine who I've had this conversation with, they're like, yeah, this is not news. Like this yeah. is, you're just seeing this for the first time. Like it was almost like, finally, you know, like finally Definitely. being talked Definitely. about. Whereas I personally, you know, and I hate to admit this because it's frankly embarrassing, but 
I just didn't understand. I, I mean, I knew it was there, but I just didn't understand. It was just like such a given, such a given. But I don't um, think that's something you should, I mean, I, I understand that there's poverty in India, but I don't actually understand it. You know right. what I mean? Because <laughs> right. I'm not, I don't live in poverty in India. So I can be like, right. oh, that's sad, but I don't get it because it's not my experience. So right. when like people who it's not their experience, I understand. And I, and I, I did have that same feeling of what you were saying, your friends were saying is, I did feel really good for like a few weeks in June where it's like, finally, there's a lot of people who are like, this should change. You know, I can be kind of pessimistic about will things actually change a lot. Right. Kind of my I nature. think that's fair. Yeah. But I think it did. There was like, there were these feelings of like, this is good to see on a large scale. If you see people like in Europe, like. Right. Right. Protesting and, and yeah. all these things. And it's, it's, yeah, it's. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming and sharing your story and uh, all of that. I am super grateful and love just getting different, you know, different stories and different people. And I think that your story is one of hope and it really, I love the piece where, you know, you take a break from that constant self-work because I've had that experience too. And that emotional bottom that emotional bottom and sobriety. So I just really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on. And what is the name of your album again? So people can go look it up. It's called 2004, A Trap Odyssey. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.